Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. So the scripture reading today is from Galatians 5, 13 to 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, forbearance, faithfulness, and self-control, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. Thanks be to God. So I think it's probably uh, fair to say that we all recognize Uh, Just how important it is uh, when we are considering what it means to mature that as we get older as we begin uh, as we're wiser uh, That that often is of course leading us to some form of maturity And we also I think all know that what seems good right and true and wise Let's just say when you're in your 20s Is probably very different than when in your 40s And I would assume that though I'm not there yet, that maturity and wisdom also will be different when I'm in my 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on, right? I think we all hope that would be the case. Uh, No offense to 20-somethings, but I think we all recognize that if you're 40 and you've really learned nothing and you make no decisions differently than when you were in your 20s, there's something probably amiss, right? We all recognize as we get older. Uh, we inevitably grow in maturity. But one of the greatest gifts on that journey toward maturity is having people in our lives that are older, wiser, further along in life with accumulated wisdom who become examples or north stars for us as we are younger. Because the key often to having a good sense of what maturity ought to be is to have a good example And to have a standard, some kind of guide in front of us that's leading us toward that maturity. That is the case in numerous aspects of life. But that is especially the case in our spiritual journeys. Having a a proper view and understanding of maturity is actually critical to us actually becoming mature. And, of course, conversely, having a wrong view of maturity 
will obviously lead to, not to maturity, but will inevitably lead to greater immaturity. Now, if you've been with us, we have been in a series that we've called NUMA, Understanding the Work of the Series, uh, Work of the Spirit. And over the course of the series, our goal has been to try and understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit, uh, in large part because the work of the Spirit is often misunderstood or even overlooked. Uh, and so in the first two weeks, we looked at the foundational works of the Spirit in creation and in our salvation. Uh, we then looked and shifted a bit to consider what it means to be baptized or filled uh, with the Holy Spirit, to have this overflowing sense of the Spirit's presence uh, with us. Then over the last two weeks, we've considered the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, and in particular, we've considered uh, what we are to make of what's often called the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. What are we to make of things like speaking in tongues and uh, healing and miracles and prophecy? Uh, we'd encourage you to go back and maybe listen to those if you missed those weeks. Uh, and now, for this week and next, we're going to again shift gears a bit by looking at the Spirit's work in our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity, uh, what we might uh, call sanctification. What is it exactly that the Spirit is doing within us to help us grow in our relationship with God? Now, next week, we're going to consider uh, the much-discussed much discussed nature of spiritual warfare and how the Spirit is involved in that reality and uh, what God gives us in order to fight spiritual battles. But this week, we're going to consider one of the most uh, important passages, I think, on spiritual maturity, uh, and that is this passage that we just heard read from Galatians 5, which uh, specifically highlights this idea of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I want to, we're going to, of course, uh, say a lot more about this later, but I do want to upfront frame these two weeks for us because of one great concern that I have for all of us. Uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about spiritual maturity and what does it mean to be having a, an active, vibrant, growing faith. But one of the concerns that I have is that at times, we might assume that spiritual maturity actually involves what we considered over the last two weeks and maybe don't spend enough time on what we're going to be considering this week and next. Meaning, there might be some assumption that the mark of spiritual maturity has something to do with the charismatic gifts or experiencing some extraordinary things in our lives. You know, that things like speaking in tongues or experiencing miracles or healing or something of the like, right? Something extraordinary is revealing some kind of maturity. And that if we are mature, we ought to be experiencing those extraordinary things in our lives. But what I hope we see this week and next is that spiritual maturity and growth in maturity actually have very little to do with those things, if anything at all, to do with those realities. Anything to do with the extraordinary. But that, rather, spiritual growth is often found and often seen in the very ordinary things of life. And the pursuit of the extraordinary too often can devolve not into maturity, but actually leads us toward immaturity. But in, uh, and often, the things that bring the most maturity in our lives, spiritual growth, are the things that maybe we don't think much of, and yet it's those things, the ordinary things, that God uses to build and grow our faith. And so, with that in mind, let's take a look at Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit by considering uh, three things that we see here in front of us in this passage. First, we see the path of immaturity. 
Second, we see the path of maturity. And then finally, we see the path set before us. Okay? I'll explain to you what I mean by that. But first, the path of immaturity. So to begin, um, I want to have some categories in front of us that I think are going to be helpful as they relate to spiritual maturity and also spiritual warfare. Uh, spiritual warfare and spiritual maturity, they often do end up pretty connected, in large part because of how the Bible often speaks of these two realities, and because they often have the same goal usually in mind. Uh, so within the Bible, with both, we often um, are going to experience uh, one of three challenges, maybe three, all three at the same time. Right? When the Bible talks about spiritual maturity, uh, in spiritual warfare, we're often seeing these three challenges. Specifically, we see the challenge of the world, the challenge of the flesh, and the challenge of the devil, or the evil one. Now next week, we're going to consider that final one, this idea of spiritual forces, the devil, and evil one. What are we to make of all of that? Pin that for now. We'll look at it next week. But I want to have in front of us what the Bible means when it speaks of the world and the flesh, because each are to be resisted, and as we resist both of them, we will experience greater and greater maturity. And so having a clear understanding of what both of them are actually helps us better understand not only maturity, but also the fruit of the Spirit, which we will speak to uh, in a little bit. So, since Paul in our passage actually spends some time on speaking of the flesh, let me just say a couple of things about the notion of the world so that, again, we have our categories all clear. So what, do we, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of the world? Well, in places like Romans 12, we're told to not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Uh, Titus 2 tells us that God's grace leads us to resist worldly passions. Uh, in 1 John 2, the Apostle John says that we, uh, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Right, what is all of that? Right? What is it about the world that's to be resisted? Well, not always, but most often, when the Bible speaks of the world like this, it's referring to the customs, the expectations, the beliefs that shape our cultures and our patterns in life. Now, not all aspects of, of culture, the culture that is around us, is bad, but most, if not, and actually even go further to say that most, if not all cultures, of the world have reflections of God in them because every culture has people in those cultures who are image bearers of God. And so naturally something about who God is will come out in various cultures. However, because of the fallenness of humanity, all cultures are also fallen and prone to waywardness that can and does lead people astray from the purposes of God. So in, in Romans 12, there are these patterns of the world to which Christians ought not to conform. And so in this way, when we hear this word world, it's not referring to the physical world, but rather the, the age in which we live. An age that, according to John 12 and Ephesians 2 and uh, 2 Corinthians 4, is ruled by the forces of darkness, the evil one. The world is the distinction between the goodness of God in creation and the way that good creation is fallen and veers away from God's good intentions. So it's important to know that resisting the patterns of this world is to acknowledge that every culture and every general pattern of humanity is fallen. It's a recognition that because sinful, fallen creatures have created governments and economic systems and cultures, 
each will have these established assumptions and patterns built in them that must be resisted by the Christian. Now for us in our context, that means that Western culture, individualism, capitalism, and even democracy have good aspects because they were created by image bearers. But they are also broken, fallen, unjust, sinful, broken systems created by broken, fallen people. And so, Christian, resist the patterns of the world. Resist the patterns of our Western, individualistic, capitalistic world. This is what it means to resist the world. However, that is very different. Well, not very different. It is different than what the Bible describes as the flesh. And Paul speaks about the flesh here in our passage. So let's consider now what Paul has to say in verses 16 and 17. This is what he says. He says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not, uh, so that you are not to do whatever you want. What exactly is he referring to when he speaks of the flesh here? Well, if the world is the sinful, broken influences that are around us, the flesh is the sinful, broken aspects within us. The flesh is the desire to, uh, to act in ways that are contrary to God's desires for us. And that battle between the flesh and the spirit is speaking of a battle between these competing desires to satisfy the flesh or obey the Spirit of God. So for those who are Christians and have new life in the Spirit, the battle against the flesh is the ongoing battle to fight against the desires that do not align with that new life. And again, this is what we call sanctification. Battling that continued sinful parts of ourselves that goes against the desires of God. And to give examples of the distinction between the flesh and the new life, Paul gives um, a list of examples to which um, speak to particularly our flesh. In verses 19 and 21, he's speaking of the flesh, and he said the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factious, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's quite a list. And what are we to make of that kind of list? Well, he's saying here that to act according to the flesh is to, for example, pursue sexual pleasures and experiences, even if they misalign with God's intention for sex. He speaks of idolatry and witchcraft, which is a willingness or a desire to seek fulfillment and purpose or security in anything other than God, who is the only true God and the only source of true power. He speaks of hatred and discord and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, which is this allowance of relational strife and relational breakdown. He then ends with drunkenness and orgies, which of course speak of a complete lack of self-control. These works of the flesh, this, this list, they sit in direct opposition to what he will eventually get to in the fruit of the Spirit, which again we'll present uh, and we'll look at it in a minute. And the battle taking place is ultimately about which is going to win out. The works of the flesh or the work of the Spirit in our lives. Now another thing that he says there that I want to just double click on really quick. At the end of that section, 
He says that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, the battle itself is actually proof that there is new life within us. So Paul is saying that if you live in the flesh, uh, in the way of the flesh, then there's really no battle that's there. Right? There's no resistance to the flesh. And as a result, the new life is actually not present in you. And if there's no new life present, then the kingdom of God is not our inheritance. However, if we are battling the flesh, resisting such things, if we resist the flesh and have a desire for obedience, that's actually proof that there's new life in us. And this is actually a very important point. And I want to make sure that we all hear this clearly, that the presence of desires that misalign with God's commands or purposes is common to all of us, all humanity. And you and I will spend our entire lives tempted toward actions and attitudes that misalign with God's good intentions for us, all of us. But the work of the Spirit is a work that empowers us to recognize and resist those desires. That's actually the consequence of a new life. Now, as a pastor, over the years, in talking with people, this has actually been an incredibly uh, helpful thing, not only for me to be reminded of, but also for, for uh, conversations that I've had with people. Because I often say, listen, a struggle with sin is actually a good sign. We need to uh, start getting concerned when there's no longer a desire to struggle against the sin that's within us. Fighting against it is actually a sign that the Spirit is at work in us. It's a scary, dangerous place to be when I no longer desire to resist that which is unpleasing to God. And here's why I wanted to make sure now that all of those categories are in front of us. Why we have an understanding of the world and uh, the flesh and what it means to resist those things. Again, next week we'll get to that, that third category uh, more. But on our journey toward spiritual maturity, we really need to ensure that we are clear about what it is that we're fighting. The world, the flesh, or the evil one. You know, over the years, I have witnessed in myself and again in others how a lack of clarity can often undermine our ability to fight well. You know, for some... As an example, there's uh, an overemphasis on the work of the evil one, for example, and a downplaying of uh, the work that is occurring within the world and the flesh. Meaning, for some, there might be a, a sin issue in their life, whatever it might be. Lust, jealousy, anger, whatever that could be. There can be this tendency, if we overemphasize the work of the evil one, to begin blaming that sin, whatever it might be, on demonic influence or demonic attack. You know, I need to pray against that spirit of lust or that spirit of anger that's taking over me. When in reality, it's not so much a work of the evil one, it's a work of the flesh that we need to take ownership of and fight against accordingly. For others, there might be an underemphasis on the patterns of this world. And we assume that we know what is good, right, and true, but we don't realize how deeply shaped we are by the assumptions of the culture and the external influences that are around us. And because we're not recognizing how deeply shaped we are by the patterns of this world, we very quickly fall into the patterns of those worlds. And we see this all the time. This becomes so evident right now 
in our politics. It becomes so evident in the way that we perceive what is good, right, and true, what, what uh, inalienable rights we ought to have. We see it so evident how deeply shaped we are by the world that's around us. And we, as a result, don't actively war against those patterns and those influences. And so whether conservative or progressive or libertarian or whatever it is, we are all being shaped by the patterns of this world. We are all being malformed and recognizing it means that we begin resisting conformity to it and we all desperately need it. But in order to actually see that resistance, we need to identify it as actually something problematic for us to resist. Again, we'll talk about this next week. But there are some of us who certainly do not take seriously enough the forces of darkness, the work of the evil one, who has set a work against us. Some of us want to assume that there are other factors at play, and we don't want to think about the fact that maybe there are spiritual forces of darkness actively at work. But all of that's just to say, the path toward immaturity is going to be a battle, or it is going to be not taking seriously enough the battle that's before us. We all are in desperate need of recognizing that there is a battle against the world, against the flesh, and against the evil one that wants to, right? The whole point and the goal is to lead us away from God, not toward him. So if that's the case, if the path toward immaturity is the world, the flesh, and the devil, what then is the path of maturity? And how do we go about resisting being pulled on a path of immaturity? Let's look at that. Uh, what we see in our passage is really the foundations for what spiritual maturity ought to look like. It really is the path toward maturity. And simply put, it's growth in the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 22. So juxtaposing the works of the flesh, Paul now says in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Now, when I started, I, I framed the day by stating that when the Spirit is at work in us, the sign of that work is not necessarily going to be anything supernatural or charismatic or extraordinary. And that the pursuit of such things can actually be a sign of immaturity, not an actual sign of maturity. Why do I say that? Because of all the things that Paul could have provided as proof that one has spiritual maturity or moving towards spiritual maturity, of all the things that he could have pointed out as necessary for resisting the flesh, or the world for that matter, what does he say? He says that the proof of the Spirit's work in us is that we are growing in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we are not seeing an ongoing growth of this fruit, then we are not actually maturing. And I also want to point out here that we are talking about, in this passage, we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and not the fruits of the Spirit. Important to just highlight for a minute. The reason is because that list 
is not a list that can be separated into distinct fruit that some might have and others might not. I mean, this is the major distinction between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Meaning that the gifts of the Spirit are distributed by the Spirit to different people for the good of the whole body. And we've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks. These are distinct callings, distinct gifts that no one has all of them except Jesus. And he's the only one that's got the totality of the gifts. But this is completely different than the fruit. Because while not all Christians will hold each gift of the Spirit, every Christian should possess the totality of the fruit of the Spirit. Every Christian, if growing in Christian character, will see a growth in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in their lives. That is true spirituality. That is true maturity. You know, one of the most influential um, books of my entire life, I've brought this book up before. I would encourage you to, if you ever get a chance to read it, Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Joy Unspeakable. There's one section in that book, and in the book he's highlighting um, uh, the work of the Spirit. The the entire book focuses on the work of the Spirit. But there's one section where uh, Jones, he's calling attention uh, to what many assume is happening when the Spirit is at work in their lives. Again, some, some Christians assume that the Holy Spirit has shown up in their lives, uh, in his words, when something dramatic or spectacular takes place. But he pushes against that idea, and he argues that though the Holy Spirit might do some spectacular things, that the spectacular is not the primary sign of the Spirit's work in us. And this is what he says. He says, if you see something very dramatic and spectacular claiming to be the Holy Spirit, you are entitled to look in that person for the fruit of the Spirit. It is because at times certain sections of the church have failed to do this, that they have made shipwrecks. In other words, there may be times in our lives or in the lives of others when there's some kind of claim to the miraculous taking place, right? Something spectacular and extraordinary. But when that happens, what Jones is saying, if we we hear about that, especially in the lives of others, we have every right to stop and say, okay, That's cool that that happened, but how is the resistance to the works of the flesh going? How is growth in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control going? These are the things, actually, that we should be focusing far more of our attention on. We should have far less interest in claiming things like prophecy or miraculous signs or wonders or anything dramatic and spectacular, and much more interest in seeing the fruit of the Spirit and the resistance of the flesh occurring within our lives. And I'll even go even further than that. I think this also very much extends to other ways in which we tend to mark spiritual growth or maturity. And one of the other ways that we can do that is through Bible knowledge or theological knowledge. When people have all, just seem to have all the right things to say about who God is or some kind of other kind of biblical knowledge. I know many And I'll be honest with you, at times I'm sure I very much fit this category too, with great knowledge, and yet very little evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. That's not to say that we shouldn't care about Bible knowledge or theological knowledge. All of that is vital and important. But knowledge without the fruit of the Spirit is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Knowing one's Bible, knowing theological things, will never replace growth in the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, The test of the Spirit's work 
And our submission to that work is going to be the ongoing development and the fruits of the Spirit. And because it's this singular fruit, we cannot claim aspects of it without others. We can't claim faithfulness if there's no love. We can't claim kindness if there's no patience or peace if there's no self-control. It ought to be something we ask God to do in us, the totality of it. And if we're going to long for anything, if we're going to work toward anything, if we're going to cry out to God to empower us toward anything, let it be the fruit of the Spirit. And so all that said, the question to put before all of us is how are we doing? One, recognizing the influences or the patterns of this world on us. How are we doing addressing the ongoing temptations toward the works of the flesh? And to what extent do we see the ongoing growth of the fruit of the Spirit in us? I mean, these are the things, these are the questions for us to be confronted by. Now the question, I guess, then puts in front of us is how then, if we desire the fruit of the Spirit, which I would hope that would be our desire today, if we desire that ongoing growth, how is it that we actually are able to move toward that kind of growth? I mean, is that something that we're able to conjure up within ourselves? Is this something that we, um, that we can just pursue and set ourselves upon that path? Or could it be that in order for us to be on that path toward maturity, we actually need to step onto a path that is already set before us? The answer to that question would be yes. Set before us. Let me explain to you what I mean. If I were to just stop here and tell us that, you know, again, the growth of the Spirit is spiritual maturity, I would actually, I would not be providing you any real hope of growth. To see why we can grow, we actually need to look even further into what it is that God is doing within us. And Paul, feeling the tension of how we exactly are supposed to go about seeing the growth uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, begins to address it, and he does so in verse 24. Right? This is the way in which we are able to actually see fruit grow within us. In verse 24, Paul says, Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. See, this list that we've, that we've seen... This list is for those who belong to Christ, the one who was crucified, and the one who, in being crucified, crucified the flesh. That is our flesh with its passions and its desires. In other words, Jesus made it possible for us to battle against the flesh because he ultimately crucified that flesh for us. And while we live in a time until Jesus returns where we have the remains of our flesh to continue fighting against, we are no longer, Christian, people of the flesh. But now we are people of the Spirit. And as people of the Spirit, those walking in the Spirit, Paul says, we now have all that we need to grow in the Spirit's work, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, something that we've said over and over again throughout these, uh, this series, and especially in the last several weeks, is that in Christ... You have everything that you need for life and godliness. There is nothing more for you to have that has not already been given to you, and that includes the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit has already been gifted to you. The question is whether or not we're actually embracing 
that fruit in our lives. A great analogy of this that I've heard is, you know, one way to live is, of course, um, by necessity at times, living paycheck to paycheck. And the struggle that comes with living paycheck to paycheck. But what if someone came along and put $100 million in your bank account? You can choose to continue living paycheck to paycheck as though that money is not there, or you can choose to actually utilize the riches that have already been given to you. And many of us, unfortunately, we are living paycheck to paycheck with a $100 million bank account, never touching it, preferring instead to continue with the struggle. But in reality, we have been given everything we need. We have given an abundance of resources already. If you are a Christian, you don't strive for the fruit as if it's something that you can attain. Rather, we grow by embracing more and more what has already been given to us in our salvation through Jesus. The money is already in our bank account. You can't possibly work toward it or earn it. It's simply recognizing what has already been accomplished and as a result, living out of it. Christian maturity is living more and more out of what Jesus has already accomplished for you. Walking in the Spirit is submitting to the Spirit's work and empowering you more and more to reflect what is already true about you. Christian, in Christ, you have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And walking with the Spirit is seeing that, recognizing it, and reflecting a life more and more of what has already been gifted. And so the real question then becomes, do we believe and trust in the fullness of what Jesus has done for us, what we've already been given? And do we believe that by the work of the Spirit, that all that Christ has for you is already yours? It's a matter of living as though that's already true. I know that that can seem like a, a difficult balancing act, but I would hate for us to walk away today assuming that the fruit of the Spirit is something that we need to attain. It's not. It's something that you have. But reorienting our hearts back toward our Savior, the one who has accomplished these things for us, is actually what produces our ability to live into them and to resist the flesh. It's remembering the work of Jesus to do so regularly will make us people of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so today, as we go, let's orient our vision, our hearts, back to the work of our Savior and the work of the Spirit within us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great grace that you provide to us in our Savior Jesus the one who has accomplished everything for us. And as a result of uh, the spirit that resides within us, as we trust in Jesus, we have everything we need for life and godliness. That even the fruit of the spirit is an accomplished work of Jesus for us. But let, Lord, when we don't live as those who are growing in the fruit, it is often because we have forgotten or neglected to remember what it is that has already been accomplished for us. We begin living a life of, of struggle, a life of the flesh, when in reality we have a life of abundance and resource available to us 
we would just trust, again, the work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so I pray that today you would encourage us with that truth, that we have everything we need, and that we would rest in trust in what Jesus has accomplished, and that as a result, we would experience the ongoing fruit, growth of the fruit of your Spirit working in us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.